today's show is a rebroadcast of a previous show. Ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Armchair Survivalist. My name is Kurt Wilson. I'm the Armchair Survivalist, and today is June the 6th in the year 2021. You can go to armchairsurvivalist.com, scroll down on any of those pages there, and you'll see all the different ways to listen to me. I'm on every podcast venue known to man. There's some very astounding things happened this week. The first one is that, as we all know, Anthony Fauci is a fraud and a typical elitist and wants, uh, you know, the whole one world government thing and let's uh, control everybody using drugs or kill everybody using vaccinations. The information came out, his emails. There is about 20,000 of them through a Freedom of Information Act. BuzzFeed News got about 3,500 of them, 3,250, something like that. Tucker Carlson has something to say about it. Tucker Carlson tonight. The utter fraudulence of Tony Fauci is obvious now, and it's widely acknowledged. But it was not always obvious. In March of last year, we interviewed Fauci on this show. We treated him with respect. We took his answers seriously. We're Americans, so we assumed the man in charge of protecting the U.S. from COVID must be rational and impressive. We also assumed he must be honest. But we were wrong. It soon became clear that Tony Fauci was just another sleazy federal bureaucrat, deeply political and often dishonest. More shocking than that, we then learned that Fauci himself was implicated in the very pandemic he'd been charged with fighting. Fauci supported the grotesque and dangerous experiments that appeared to have made COVID possible. We came to these conclusions incrementally, spurred by evidence that accumulated over the course of a year. Tonight, we have the mother load. Thanks to a Freedom of Information request from BuzzFeed, We have thousands of emails to and from Anthony Fauci. They go back to the early winter of 2020. Collectively, they show that from the beginning, Tony Fauci was worried that the public might conclude COVID had originated at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, why would Tony Fauci be concerned that Americans would conclude that? Possibly because Tony Fauci knew perfectly well that he had funded gain-of-function experiments at that very same laboratory. The emails prove that Fauci lied about this under oath. Consider this exchange, which began the evening of January 31st, 2020. It was a Friday just before midnight. The first email came from an immunologist called Christian Anderson, who 
works at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California. Anderson warned Fauci that COVID appeared to have been possibly manipulated in a laboratory. Quote, the unusual features of the virus make up a really small part of the genome, less than 0.1%. So one has to look really closely at all the sequences to see that some of the features potentially look engineered. The next day, on February 1st, Tony Fauci wrote back, thanks, Christian. Talk soon on the call. Fauci then sent an urgent email to his deputy, a man called Hugh Auchincloss. The subject of that email, in all caps, was important. Quote, Hugh, it is essential that we speak this AM. Keep your cell phone on. Read this paper as well as the email that I will forward. You will have tasks today that must be done. Attached to that email was a document. It was entitled, quote, Barrick, She et al., Nature Medicine, SARS Gain of Function, dot PDF. Now, the Barrick in the attachment referred to Ralph Barrick, a virologist based in the U.S., who collaborated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Barrick worked with a woman called Dr. Shi Sheng Li, known as the bat lady because she manipulates coronaviruses that infect bats. She was the she in the attachment. Now, keep in mind that during the questioning from Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky fairly recently, Tony Fauci denied that this same Ralph Barak had conducted gain-of-function research. Again, this is the Ralph Barak in Fauci's attachment, which was entitled Barak, she et al., SARS gain-of-function dot PDF. And yet, under oath before the United States Congress, Fauci denied this. Dr. Barrett does not doing gain-of-function research, and if it is, it's according to the guidelines, and it is being conducted in North Carolina. And if you look at the grant, and you look at the uh, progress reports, it is not gain-of-function, despite the fact that people tweet that. Oh, it wasn't just on Twitter. It was in Fauci's own emails. In retrospect, that looks a lot like perjury. We do know that starting early last year, a lot of people at NIH were worried that COVID had not occurred naturally. They were concerned it had been instead manipulated in a lab in China. And yet they seemed determined to hide those facts from the public. Again, why? On the afternoon of February 1st last year, Fauci held a conference call with several top virologists. Most of the details of that call were made hidden from public view. They've been redacted. We know the call was related to a document entitled Coronavirus Sequence Comparison. Jeremy Farrar, a British physician who runs a major research nonprofit, reminded everyone on the call that what they said was top secret. Quote, information and discussion is shared in total confidence and not to be shared until agreement on next steps, end quote. In other emails, Jeremy Farrar passed along an article from the website Zero Hedge. That piece suggested the coronavirus might have been created as a bioweapon. We now know that is a more plausible explanation than the one we believed at first and were told by the media, which is that corona came from a pangolin. And yet for the crime of saying that out loud, a more plausible explanation, Zero Hedge was banned from social media platforms. Until recently, you were not allowed to suggest that COVID might be man-made. Why couldn't you suggest that? The fact checkers wouldn't allow it. Why wouldn't they? Because Tony Fauci assured the tech monopolies that the coronavirus could not have been man-made. And so the tech monopolies shut down the topic. Watch Fauci lie. A group of highly qualified evolutionary virologists looked at the sequences there and the sequences in bats as they evolve. And the mutations that it took to get to the point where it is now is totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. That was April 17th, 2020, very shortly into the course of this pandemic. At that point, what Tony Fauci just asserted as known could not conclusively have been known. 
That was a lie. Tony Fauci suggested that he knew because top researchers had decided conclusively that this must have jumped naturally from an animal to a human being. But again, at that point, he could not have known that. That was dishonest. Two days after he said that, one of the virologists that Tony Fauci had funded to conduct dangerous coronavirus experiments in Wuhan wrote to thank him for the help. That man, a man called Peter Daszak, complained to Fauci that the American tax dollars he'd taken for these experiments were being, quote, publicly targeted by Fox News reporters. Yet Daszak remained grateful for Tony Fauci's support. Quote, I just wanted to say a personal thank you on behalf of our staff and collaborators, end quote. Now, strangely, most of this specific email from Daszak to Fauci has been redacted, and it was redacted under FOIA section B7A. That specific exemption to the FOIA law applies to, quote, records or information compiled for law enforcement purposes, but only to the extent that production of those documents could reasonably be expected to interfere with enforcement proceedings. Are Peter Daszak and Tony Fauci under criminal investigation? We can only hope they are. They certainly deserve it. At this point, we can't say for sure. We do know that Fauci hasn't simply lied about the origins of COVID, pretending to know things he could not know. He has also lied about vaccines in key ways. In March of last year, former Obama official Zeke Emanuel wrote to Fauci to ask a very simple question, one that we've asked countless times. Are people who have recovered from COVID generally immune from getting infected with COVID once again? That applies to about 100 million Americans, so it's not a small question. Fauci's response, quote, no evidence in this regard, but you would assume that there would be substantial immunity post-infection. Well, yes, you would assume that. We always have. And in fact, studies now show it is true. People who have had COVID and recovered almost never get sick again from COVID. So they don't need to be vaccinated. Yet to this day, Tony Fauci has never admitted that in public. In his email to Zeke Emanuel, he admitted something else that's also now obvious. Surgical masks, the paper kind all of us wear, don't really work. They offer very little protection from COVID. In fact, at least one study shows they may accelerate transmission of viruses. They are, in short, a form of make-believe. Yet once again, while under oath in public, Tony Fauci claimed precisely the opposite. You're telling everybody to wear a mask, whether they've had an infection or a vaccine. What I'm saying is they have immunity and everybody agrees they have immunity. What studies do you have? have that people that have had the vaccine or have had the infection are spreading the infection if we're not spreading the infection isn't it just theater no it's not the vaccine and you're wearing two masks isn't that theater no that's not here we go again with the theater let me just state for the record that masks are not theater masks are protective and we have immunity there theater if you already have immunity you're wearing a mask to give comfort to others you're not wearing a mask because of any sign i I totally disagree with you Rand paul is a physician he's smart what he just said was true and the science shows that it's true there's not much debate about it actually among honest people but tony fauci claimed it wasn't true he lied why would he do that well here's one reason the emails show that tony fauci speaks regularly to bill gates that's odd Bill Gates is not a doctor. Bill Gates is not a scientist. Bill Gates is a very rich man who made billions making mediocre software for office computers. So why would Tony Fauci be in such regular contact with Bill Gates? The term Bill Gates comes up more than two dozen times when you search the Fauci emails. Has Bill Gates profited in any way from Tony Fauci's COVID guidance? That would definitely be worth knowing. And yet we don't know. Our media don't seem interested in finding out. 
In fact, here's how CNN covered the emails today. Quote, thousands of emails from and to Dr. Fauci revealed the weight that came with his role as a rare source of frank honesty within the Trump administration's COVID-19 task force. Can you imagine a more dishonest characterization of anything than that? By the way, it wasn't just CNN. No reporters asked about these emails at today's White House press briefing. Not one question. But you shouldn't be surprised. Of course they didn't ask. Tony Fauci is too big to question at this point. Quote, oh my God, one Biden voter wrote to Tony Fauci back in March. Is there anything I can do for you besides being grateful? Wash my feet with your tears, Fauci may have responded. We can't say that he did respond that way for certain. We don't have his reply. We do know that in affluent neighborhoods throughout Northwest Washington, D.C., you can still see signs that say, thank you, Dr. Fauci. What does that tell you? It tells you that Tony Fauci is no longer a scientist, assuming he ever was one. Tony Fauci is a figure of religious veneration. He is Jesus for people who don't believe in God. Maybe soon Tucker will stop beating around the bush about how he actually feels about this uh, con artist. It's getting to the point now where people are starting to realize that this whole COVID thing was a fraud and was set up to achieve something, especially when nobody has an actual sample of SARS-2 COVID-19. I came across an interview with a virologist from Canada. This has got everyone involved with this uh, COVID fraud really walking on eggshells because they don't know what's going to happen. Let's bring in Dr. Byron Bridal. He's an associate professor of viral immunology at the University of Guelph. Doctor, you've been very, very open on this whole issue. And, and you know, you're not an anti-vaxxer by any stretch. But what do you think about this inflammation in the heart? And, and is, is it an actual threat? Yeah, as you said, I'm very much pro-vaccine, but always making sure that the science is done properly and that we follow the science carefully before going into uh, you know public rollout of vaccines. I hope you run, let me run with this a little bit, Alec. I'll forewarn you and your, your listeners that um, the story I'm about to tell is is a bit of a scary one. This is cutting-edge science. Uh, there's a couple of pieces of scientific information that have become privy to just within the past few days that has made the final link so we understand now myself and some key international collaborators, we understand exactly why these problems are happening and many others associated with these vaccines. And the story is a bit of a scary one. So just to brace you for this, but I'm going to walk you through this. The science that that I'm going to be talking about, I don't have the time here to describe exactly the scientific data, but let me assure you that everything that I'm stating here, that I'm going to state right now is completely backed up by peer-reviewed scientific publications in uh, well-known and uh, well-respected scientific journals. I have all of this information in hand. I'm in the process of mildly trying to put it all into uh, a a document that I can hopefully circulate widely. So your listeners are going to be the first to hear the public release of this conclusion. The SARS coronavirus 2 has a spike protein on its surface. That spike protein is what allows it to infect our bodies. That is why we've been using the spike protein in our vaccines. The vaccines we're using get our cells in our body to manufacture that protein. If we can mount an immune response against that protein, in theory, we we can prevent this virus from infecting the body. That's the theory behind the vaccine. However, when studying the disease, severe COVID-19, everything that you've just described, heart problems, lots of problems with the cardiovascular system, bleeding and clotting is all associated with severe COVID-19. And doing that research, what has been discovered by scientific community is the spike protein on its own is almost entirely responsible for the damage to the cardiovascular system if it gets into circulation. Indeed, if you inject the, the purified spike protein, 
into the blood of research animals. They get all kinds of damage to the cardiovascular system. It can cross the blood-brain barrier and cause damage to the brain. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem too concerning because we're injecting these vaccines into the shoulder muscle. The assumption all up until now has been that these vaccines behave like all of our traditional vaccines, that they don't go anywhere other than the injection site. So they stay in our shoulder. Some of the protein will go to the local draining lymph node in order to activate the immune system. However, th this is where the cutting edge science has come in. This, and this is where it gets scary. Through a request for information from the Japanese regulatory agency, myself and several international collaborators have been able to get access to what's called a biodistribution study. It's the first time ever that scientists have been privy to seeing where these messenger RNA vaccines go after vaccination. In other words, is it a safe assumption that it stays in the shoulder muscle? The short answer is absolutely not. It's very disconcerting. The spike protein gets into the blood, circulates through the blood in individuals over several days post-vaccination. It accumulates, once it gets in the blood, it accumulates in a number of tissues such as the spleen, the bone marrow, the liver, the adrenal glands. One that's of particular concern for me is it accumulates at quite high concentrations in the ovaries. And then also a publication that was just accepted for a scientific paper, just accepted for publication that, that backs this up. 13 young healthcare workers that had received the Moderna vaccine, which is the other messenger RNA-based vaccine we have in Canada, they confirmed this. They found the spike protein in circulation, so in the blood of 11 of those 13 healthcare workers that had received the vaccine. What this means is, so we have known for a long time that the spike protein is a pathogenic protein. It is a toxin. It can cause damage in our body if it gets into circulation. Now we have clear-cut evidence that the vaccines that make our, or the cells in our, in our deltoid muscles, right, manufacture this protein. The vaccine itself plus the protein gets into blood circulation. When in circulation, the spike protein can bind to the receptors that are on our platelets and the cells that line our blood vessels. When that happens, it can do one of two things. It can either cause platelets to clump and that can lead to clotting. That's exactly why we've been seeing clotting disorders associated with these vaccines. It can also lead to bleeding. And of course, the heart's involved. It's part, a key part of the cardiovascular system. That's why we're seeing heart problems. The protein, it can also cross the blood-brain barrier and cause neurological damage. That's why also in the fatal cases of blood clots, many times it's seen in the brain. And also of concern is there's also evidence of a, of a study. This has not yet been accepted for publication yet, this one. They were trying to show that the antibodies from the vaccine get transferred through breast milk. And the idea was this may be a good thing because it, it would confer some passive protection to babies. However, However, what they found inadvertently was the vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines, actually get transferred through the breast milk. So they're delivering the vaccine vector itself into infants that are breastfeeding. Also, with this, now we know the spike protein gets into circulation. Any proteins in the blood will get concentrated in breast milk. Looking into the adverse event database in the United States, we have found evidence of suckling infants experiencing bleeding disorders in the gastrointestinal tract. This has implications for blood donation. Right now, Canadian Blood, Canadian blood Services is saying people that who have been vaccinated can donate. We don't want transfer of these pathogenic spike proteins to fragile patients. We're being tr uh, transfused with that blood. This has implications for infants that are suckling. And this has serious implications for people for whom SARS coronavirus 2 is not a high risk pathogen and that includes all of our children. In short, the conclusion is we made a big mistake. We didn't realize it until now. We thought the spike protein was a great target antigen. We never knew the spike protein itself was a toxin and was a pathogenic protein. So by vaccinating people, we are inadvertently inoculating them with a toxin 
In some people, this gets into circulation, and when that happens in some people, it can cause damage, especially to the cardiovascular system. And I have many other, I don't have time, but many other legitimate questions about the long-term safety, therefore, of this vaccine. Right. For example, with it accumulating in the ovaries, one of my questions is, will we be rendering young people infertile? And there's a lot of data out there that validifies his uh, statement. This could be the worst crime ever committed on Earth. Unless you're in an actual position where you can affect large quantities of people, like a politician or something like that, it's just you and me, baby. So we got to do what we can do. And I can give you some clues onto this, just like I have for the past 25 years. Your health. You can't just go on with life thinking to yourself, you know, someday I'll exercise. Someday I'll take nutrition properly. Someday I'll... I'll get some oregano oil and use it every day. Someday. Well, there's a song by Creedence Clearwater. Someday never comes. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you better start doing the things that you can do to protect yourself. And I know what works. Our oregano oil is the strongest antimicrobial on earth. When we went through testing with it, Stanford University, decades ago, they could find no pathogen that could live any close proximity to our oregano oil. Nothing could live there. You need to be taking oregano oil. I suggest you buy it from me. You go to survivalenterprises.com, se1.us, you know, the whole rigmarole, rada, rada, rada. Oregano oil builds your immune system up like you wouldn't believe. If you get, let's say you come down with a flu, you start taking our oregano oil, instead of having a five or seven day flu, you got a two day flu. This is the thing. These, there's products out there. There's so many different ones. We also have colloidal silver. That is microscopic particles of silver that's floating around in distilled water. Silver kills all known pathogen on contact. So there's two weapons that you can use right now to keep yourself alive. And there's D3. Now, we sell that sublingual D3 little pills you put under your tongue and they dissolve. But D3, people do not get what they need. And that's been, that's been happening now for the past 7,500 years. We don't get the vitamin D that we need because we don't work outside anymore. That's where our bodies got it. It was Our bodies were designed to work outside. So we're going to get your D3 from there. Well, no, I'm sorry. We, we're just not doing it. The most uh, outside humans see nowadays is when they hang their arm outside the window when they're driving. You've got to get D3 into your system. You've also got to get zinc into your system. Zinc stops viruses from replicating. CBD, and I'll have this article posted on my uh, website for show notes. CBD has been found, if as long as it's real CBD, not this synthetic isolated crap, to stop possible replication of viral agencies on lung tissue. CBD is, is uh, direct from Mother Earth. Isn't that strange that things were designed and live on this planet that can actually help our bodies? And vitamin C, you know, you've got to do everything that you thought about as, a, as growing up. Oh, I should be taking that. I should be not taking that. Oh, I should be taking that. Well, why the hell haven't you been? You know, I, I'm astounded how many people come into my store who are sick or even dying. And at that point, they say to themselves, maybe I ought to do something about it. The oregano oil we've been using personally for over 25 years. Since that time, have, have you noticed, I don't know if you go through this, but most humans have like two to four colds a year. Maybe a flu every four or five years. Maybe, you know, they get sick. 
Well, picture a time where you don't get sick. Picture your picture your sicknesses. Take a vacation. Ten years between. Like myself, I haven't been sick in, in a decade. Surprise, surprise, I got a cold the other day. But it was because I was exhausted. And I had been exhausted because of the work that I'd been doing in, in researching for my last show. I was physically exhausted. So I got a cold. Instead of having the cold for a week like most people do, is like three days, two days, that kind of thing. Oregano oil. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. If you go to my website, go to the health department on the website, se1.us slash health, scroll down, you're going to see a whole bunch of different products there. The thing is, we've been in business almost 40 years. That whole time, what we're doing is researching things that actually help people. See, we're not here to, we're not here to get rich. We'll leave that to somebody else to do. We're here to find out what people need or want, and then we supply it. And when they get sick all the time, all the time, that's where we step in. We give you preventative stuff. And you've heard me say this many times. I have a cartoon about this posted on my wall. It says, life is a participation sport. You've got to participate in it and you've got to learn as much as you can. Most people, they, they got a they got a eight to five, Monday through Friday, so they go out and they, they put two new cars on credit and they get a boat on credit or a ski mobile or a snowmobile or, or some other mobile on credit. They get all this crap on credit because, well, they got a job and they can make the payments. This, this is what the idiots think. Oh, I can afford the payments. I can afford the payments. Yeah, no. All of these things that you do that shouldn't be done are what cause you to get sick. You open your body up. You open it up wide. To any pathogen floating around. You know, I could take a, do a blood sample from you right now, and I guarantee you I'll find over a dozen deadly pathogen in your blood. Me too. The thing is, we all carry it around. We all carry all kinds of weird stuff around. But why isn't it affecting us? Because we haven't opened our body up. Because we've maintained our immune system. Because we get a plenty of sleep. We get exercise. And then once in a while, your body runs down because it's it's just on a wing and a prayer that you're running. And then this stuff comes in with a vengeance. We have been defrauded in the world. Now, I'm not talking about about this, this COVID-19. I'm talking about medicine, period. Medicine is not there to cure anything. Any ads you see on TV, you ever notice, you know, they're going to cure cancer real soon? You know how many decades they've been playing that game? Or multiple sclerosis? Or leukemia? Or all of that stuff. They're not going to cure any of it. It's all fraud. And once every five or ten years, they come out with this, wow, we just discovered a pill that can probably cure breast cancer in one out of 50,000 people who get it. So the idea is that you don't want to get sick. You need to do the things that you need to do to build your immune system up. Now, everybody's different. There are people who do, like my brother was anemic. So we moved to an area that had red dirt. And he would, we planted a garden. Every day he'd be out there working in that dirt. Do you know what the largest organ of the human body is? His skin. So he was absorbing iron via his skin. He hated vegetables. It took only one year and his anemia was cured. So 
people are doing certain things to keep themselves afloat. But you you got to take a look at what you're not doing. And sure, the oregano oil, the colloidal silver, the CBD, even the uh, old uh, old Indian uh, cough syrup that we carry, which I can tell you right now, I can't even talk unless I'm using this stuff. There's all kinds of stuff out there, not just from me, not just from survival enterprises. There's there's a lot of stuff, and people harm themselves in two ways. One, they ingest something they shouldn't, or two, they don't ingest something they should. When I was a kid, when I first started in the insurance business years and years and too many years ago, my breakfast every day was a McDonald burger thing, every day, and then for lunch, and for dinner, I'd splurge and have a TV dinner. You know, that's great for a few years, and then that when you you run out of the uh, the uh, storage of health that you had in your body, and now you're burning calories like crazy and you're sick, well, you don't need to do that. Be aware of what you're eating and be aware of what you're not eating and not taking and not consuming. There's also been another ransomware attack, and this time on the largest, the largest meat produ- uh, production company on earth. This has been proven. This ransomware stuff has been proven to uh, enrich the the terrorists, these people who are doing these hacks. You guys better be aware. I, I don't know how else to say this, but if you don't have, hold something in your hand, you don't own it. If you don't hold something in your hand, you can't use it. Your money in the bank can be worthless. Let's say you've got, uh, I don't know, 401k out of, in Bank of America, $250,000. And somebody hacks Bank of America and holds them for ransom. And no, you can't get any money out whatsoever. And by the way, these, these ransomware attacks, they're achieved by stupid people. This is what happens. You get an email. Let's say you work for Bank of America. You get an email. It says uh, your, your account might have been compromised. We noticed some uh, activity that wasn't normal last night. Log in, change your password. People are stupid enough to go, okay, I'll log you right in and change my password. Boom. That was a phony email. Don't answer any of these. Don't answer any of these any of these emails you get. Period. I don't care who you are. You might think that you're innocuous, you don't mean you're nothing you don't mean nothing to nobody. You're of no importance, but they will find a way to go through a back door. And be aware there are all kinds of uh, attacks. I get a dozen a day. And all they are is some nonsensical email with a, with a uh, file to open, like a PDF. No security is going to stop what's going to happen if you open one of those. And I have the best security you can get. Delete everything. You get an attachment from somebody that you don't know, delete it. Just simple. Just delete it. If I don't know you and you send me an attachment, I'm going to delete it. It's just automatic. But this is what's happening. People are not using common sense. People are oblivious to reality. So they'll go ahead and open these things, and the next thing you know, you, the electrics, the electronics uh, all go down in the western part of the United States because somebody allowed uh, the hackers to gain access to the electrical grid. There's, there's a lot that we're going to see coming up. This is going to be very, very, very dangerous. The Ice Age farmer 
has his take on it, and he'll explain it to you clearer than I will. Ladies and gentlemen, the biggest meat company in the world, JBS, is currently shut down globally because of a cyber attack. Now, if you remember the AmeriCold cyber attack, where the cold storage provider had their systems go down and everything just ground to a halt. They didn't know what was coming in on these trucks. They didn't know what was supposed to be going out on the other trucks. They didn't know what was in their huge cold storage freezer, What this pallet over there. Where everything just stopped until they were able to get those systems back up. This same scenario is now transpiring at JBS, except that there are animals involved. They don't know where their cows are. They don't know where their animal feed is. They don't know where their truckers are supposed to be going to pick these things up or to bring them over for processing. Again, when live animals are involved, and as in general with our supply chain, everything is so fine-tuned, it's just a just-in-time supply chain, that there are dangerous situations that happen here. So, for example, many of these feedlots have just enough feed to feed the animals until the very day that they go off for processing. But now that the whole engine has shut down, those animals are still there, and there's no food for them. So you can see how this, even within a couple of days, very quickly cascades into a humanitarian crisis for the animals, and certainly into outsized disruptions of the global protein supply and the meat market. In fact, you can see union reps are already saying there could be a protein deficiency globally if we're not able to get JBS back online and processing. Now, what's not mentioned is that JBS had already been stopping some of their facilities. In fact, we've, we've talked about this. The drought in Brazil was destroying their safrana, their corn crop there, and feed costs were exploding. Now we've got $7 corn. We've got these meat companies that are basically just feeding money into the cows, and then they're not even able to sell their meat anymore because people can't afford to pay that kind of price. The demand, It says domestic demand is dwindling. Demand is still there. It's just that they're priced out of the market. People can't afford super expensive meat, so now they're starting to idle their operations. This is April 12th. Brazilian beef packers are halting production in selected locations. Well, that's not a very good story, right? Are we just going to stop making meat because we run out of animal feed? That doesn't really sound good. But what sounds better is if we just marry these two things. What better time than just to marry the World Economic Forum's cyber pandemic and these cyber attacks on our critical infrastructure with the war on meat? So all of a sudden, this perfectly scripted cyber attack on JBS happens. Again, it wasn't just JBS and beef. You can see Reuters reporting that BRF, the world's largest poultry exporter, that's where the rest of the world gets their chicken, is from the biggest exporter of poultry in the world, that was considering slaughtering their chickens and stopping their pork and poultry plants. Why? Because of the record corn prices, because we can't get animal feed, or we can't afford to feed these animals. JBS was doing the same thing, and so it is no surprise that they reach into their back pocket and pull out that perfect excuse the cyber pandemic. They are, after all, a World Economic Forum partner company. Here from wefforum.org, JBS, the world's largest processors of animal protein. Well, that's pretty insightful, isn't it? That they're a partner with the World Economic Forum who's openly advocating for the post-animal economy. Yeah, it's because JBS is in on it. They want to end animal agriculture. So does Tyson. Here's Tyson Foods stating their commitment to sustainable protein and to Davos, to the World Economic Forum. Yeah, they're, they're in on this. So when we heard Klaus Schwab 
utter those words last year at the Cyber Polygon think tank exercise where they talked about how there's going to be a cyber pandemic. He said, We all know, but still pay insufficient attention to the frightening scenario of a comprehensive cyber attack, which would bring to a complete halt to the power supply, transportation, hospital services, our society as a whole. The COVID-19 crisis would be seen in this respect as a small disturbance in comparison to a major cyber attack. And as Klaus Schwab uttered those words, and as the FireEye hacking toolkit was stolen, and as the SolarWinds hack meant that Fortune 500 companies and governments around the world were suddenly vulnerable to any of these things, suddenly that script was launched. This carte blanche for anyone to do anything they wanted to their pipelines or to their meatpacking facilities, just shut it down. Turn it off for a while. Let the gas prices rise. Let the meat prices rise. They're just starving out consumers and getting them used to this new normal. Increased gas prices, increased meat prices. Let's look a little bit about what JBS is saying. There will be, quote, severe economic impact on workers at the offline production facility Facilities, quote, it depends how long this goes on for and how long JBS stays offline. It's a supply chain that starts right at the farm gate, right through to the feedlots, all the way down to truck drivers. Everyone is severely impacted by a complete stoppage of the meat industry. And of course, this isn't the first blow to meat production. Argentina had already stopped exporting all of their grains and then even their beef to Brazil to try and keep domestic prices controlled. It was this, in fact, that prompted Brazilian meat to say, if I can't get access to those grains from Argentina, then I can't afford to feed my animals. And that's where we started seeing those headlines initially about we're going to start slowing down the meat production. Now they've just hit the panic button and launched into overdrive, blamed the cyber pandemic. And it's just like blaming COVID. It's just this boogeyman. Global problems require global solutions. Plus it buys us the ability to turn off the meat. We can just do whatever we want. Now at the same time, we've got these fake meat companies also working hand in hand with the World Economic Forum. And in fact, they're going out and donating fake meat right now to food banks and food pantries and to other emergency sources. So when people who are losing their jobs in these lockdowns are going out to get help from the food banks, they don't come home with real meat anymore. They come home with trash from the meatless farm company and impossible burgers and stuff like that. Now, who are these companies that are just giving away fake meat, right? That doesn't seem like a very good business model to invent a new product and then just give it away 20,000 vegan sausages. Well, if you look at this company, just as one example, this meatless farm company, well, they raised a new round, $31 million to fund post-lockdown growth. The gentleman who ran that round. The funding round was managed by recently appointed meatless farm director, Leopoldo Zambelletti, who has 20 years of investment banking experience at J.P. Morgan and Credit Suisse. Leopoldo said, this funding gives meatless farms the ability to take advantage consumers' desire to build back better in the wake of COVID-19. He's right there, virtue signaling. This is part of the Great Reset. This is part of weaning people off of meat now that they're just going to shut down the production and blame the cyber pandemic and we'll give away our free meat over here. They're going to get this done by hook or by crook. You remember Wired Magazine, fake meat is coming whether or not you like it. Now you see what they mean. Um, at the same time, there are other supply chain disruptions that we could talk about. And again, this is some of the speculation I've heard from within JBS was that they weren't able to get their trucks to deliver enough animal feed to keep their 
their operations running, that they had to hit this panic button and shut down operations because the feed was too expensive or it wasn't there at all. And here's one hint that that might be the case from DairyHerd.com. Where are all the truckers? Quote, there's currently a nationwide deficit of both long haul and short run truck drivers. It is impacting the transit of feed, fuel, milk, and dairy products. It's already impacted these things. And this is just going to get worse. It's impacting the whole supply chain, getting the trucks where they need to go, getting in and out of warehouses because of work ha- workforce and equipment issues. It's causing problems. And so if dairy farmers are having problems getting their feed, then obviously JBS, Smithfield, Tyson, all these other meat producers are going to be encountering similar logistical difficulties. And again, the, the big story here is that we're running out of grains, right? We lost that third crop of corn, the safrana crop in Brazil. We are actively losing yield here in the United States right now, you can see from this latest drought monitor graph from the USDA that the severe areas of drought are overlapping about 24% of U.S. corn production. So that huge corn crop that the U.S. needed this year, required this year to make up for last year and for the loss in Brazil, it's not going to be there either. This global grains shortage is not going away. The $7 corn, get used to it. And that's why they're shutting off the meat. There's a whole bunch of other stories that we could talk about right now, but but it's, it's the early hours of this. And I really think we should just stay tuned. Let's watch how long they keep JBS turned off, and that's going to be very insightful. Was this a lasting blow because you don't have any grains to feed animals? Is this just the cover story for the end of animal agriculture? But just initially, as this breaks, it's worth noting this is a perfect marriage of the cyber pandemic narrative of the war on meat and all of these scripts coming together plus massive economic damage and further difficulties to the supply chain being introduced. We had said that there would be cyber attacks on our supply chain and on our food system, and here they are. Welcome to it. This is a whole new age where the enemy can reach through the internet and affect you. They can take your money. They can take your house. They can take your car. They can lock down all your credit cards to where you have no access to uh, your debit. I'm astounded every day in our store here in in uh, Hayden, people come in and they want to buy something for a dollar fifty, and they whip out a debit card. And I look at them and said, "You, you don't have cash for a dollar fifty? Oh, I never carry cash. All I carry is my phone and my debit card." And I tell everyone who, and this is not an isolated incident. This is daily, and it's not just the millennials, and it's not just the children. This is people eighty years old doing the same crap. So age is no limiter to stupid. You have to think ahead. You better get your cash, and you better make sure it's safe. In uh, the year 2010, a movie came out called Grinding America Down. It was uh, written by a gentleman named Curtis Bowers, who I interviewed him. I took that movie, and I edited it down to where it would be understandable on the radio. And I have the copy of that, and I played this thing 11 years ago. It's time to play it again. Because what's happening is exactly what Curtis said. America is going to be ground down, bit by bit by bit. Now, remember, what I'm going to play is 11 years old. You tell me if you can tell the difference. Hello. In the traditional motion picture story, the villains are usually defeated. The ending is a happy one. I can make no such promise for the picture you're about to watch. The story isn't over. You and the audience are part of the conflict. More human beings were slaughtered in the 20th century than in all previous centuries. 
combined. We're talking a congressional record, 135 million dead. Their entire purpose was to detach our culture from any moral anchors whatsoever. You look at the changes in America since 1960, perhaps. The, the whole culture has been transformed. They're coming out of the belief that the village should raise the child. Uh, the village means the government. They have deliberately destroyed the American family, understanding that's the foundational block that uh, builds a society. We've come from uh, Norman Rockwell's America to, uh, you know, Hugh Hefner's America. If we lose the Judeo-Christian framework, we're lost forever. The left wants you to think that the cultural changes that have taken place in America since the 1960s have done nothing but progress us forward toward a brave new world. They look at what holds society together, they understand it, but they don't want that. They want change, and they will subvert and rot every good and decent thing we believe in because they have a vision for a new society, and that must mean the replacement of the old society. This film will show that the brave new world they seek is nothing more than the failed policies and ideologies of the communism that enslaved over a third of the world's population during the 20th century. It will show that most people on the left aren't communist, just the useful idiots Lenin spoke of, being used to promote a socialist agenda, which is the first and necessary step toward communism. They basically try to say that the state itself is ultimate, that there's nothing, no law higher than the state, and if there's no law higher than the state, there's no appeal against it. History has proven beyond any doubt that the free enterprise that freedom produces provides more for anyone willing to work than any other system. So why would the left still be pushing their socialist agenda on us? I mean, it's really just microwave communism. There's only two possibilities. They're either ignorant or they're evil. From my investigation over the last two years into what has caused America's drastic decline, I'm sorry to say, the left won't be able to use the ignorant card. They've left too much evidence of their agenda in their books, articles, and speeches. No, America has an enemy that is getting very close to accomplishing its plan of destroying the greatest country in all world history. Once people figure it out, they're going to do what people everywhere do, they're going to start protesting and they're going to start revolting. And when that happens, that's when the powers that be feel threatened and they use the power that they have. This story really begins for me back in the summer of 1992. I got a phone call from an older gentleman I knew who was a writer and he asked me if I'd go attend a meeting for him at the University of California, Berkeley. He told me that the Communist Party USA had recently split over differences of how to best take America down. Some were wanting to still work toward a violent revolution, while others were wanting to focus their efforts on using public policy to subvert America from the inside. He was curious what they had to say. I mean, after all, the Berlin Wall had just come down, the Soviet Union had dissolved, and the whole world was saying, communism is dead. So why were they meeting? 
And what were they up to? I was in graduate school at the time, and the whole idea of slipping in undercover into a communist meeting sounded pretty neat, so I decided to go. The first surprise I had was when I walked into the auditorium. I was expecting it to be filled with college radicals, but instead it was 50-, 60-, and 70-year-olds, I mean grandparents, professionally dressed with briefcases, and I realized this might be a little more serious than I thought. As the weekend unfolded, I listened carefully as they outlined their plan and agenda and how they were going to infiltrate the institutions of America to influence us in the direction they wanted us to go. To destroy our families, they wanted to promote cohabitation instead of marriage. They wanted to try to get children away into government programs at the earliest age possible. And they also said they'd like to get behind the feminist movement because they felt it had been very successful in making women discontent with marriage and motherhood. To destroy business, they wanted to get behind the environmental movement. And in 1992, the environmental movement was very modest, but they thought it was the only vehicle capable of creating enough regulation and red tape to discourage business growth. And finally, to destroy our culture of religion and morality, they said, if we can get Americans to accept homosexuality, they thought it would begin to extinguish our traditional moral values Americans held. I remember thinking at the time, this plan doesn't seem very realistic. It's not something I'll need to worry about in my lifetime. It was 15 years later, I was appointed by the governor to be a state representative in the legislature. I'd only lived in my district for two years, so I thought it'd be a good idea if I wrote a monthly letter to the editor. Each month I wrote on a different topic. In January 2008, as I was contemplating what to write my letter on, I thought back to the meeting in 1992. And I thought of the goals they'd outlined and where America was today. And I couldn't believe how successful they had been. I mean, our families were totally disintegrating. The environmental movement had become the most powerful force for destroying our free markets. And hate crimes legislation was being considered in Washington, D.C. that made it a crime to even say anything against the homosexual movement. I realized people needed to know what was going on. After I wrote this letter, within days, people were protesting at the Capitol. It was a feature story on the evening news. Controversial comments have state legislators buzzing tonight. After a freshman lawmaker alleges the communist agenda has infiltrated mainstream America. It's the big story, live at 6. And over 40 letters to the editor had been printed in response to what I'd said. Hey, I just wanted to give you support on your newspaper article. Don't let them grind you down. I realized then I'd hit on something. One of the letters written in my defense stated that a book from 1958 had outlined a similar agenda. And this got my attention. The book was The Naked Communist by Cleon Skousen, who had been a former FBI agent. And inside the book, it documented 45 current communist goals from 1958. And as I slowly read through the list, seeing how specific their agenda had been, to subvert us on the inside, I couldn't believe it. They'd accomplished almost every single one of them, and nobody seemed to be noticing. For at least the last 50 years, they'd been working actively behind the scenes, in the shadows, trying to move our people and our culture in a direction that was designed to destroy us. Someone needed to find out the truth of what had happened to our country. 
Could all of these very specific goals have been accomplished by accident? Or was there something there, under the surface, intentionally rotting away America's culture? I decided to go and get the facts from some of my favorite writers and speakers around the country. These are a few of the questions I asked them. The common myth is that communism is dead, but there are more Communist Party members in the world today than there ever have been. One of the things the communists are, are doing worldwide is not using that name. Uh, and so what we have is people with some of the same ideas uh, masquerading in the United States uh, under a variety of names. They're even trying to uh, get away from the word liberal uh, to describe them, uh, and they're trying to call themselves progressives. If you go to the American Communist Party website, all of the programs and policies they support are progressive. So progressives are anything from a, a hardcore liberal to a communist to a socialist. They all call themselves progressives, and they all have broadly the same values and work together. Jagger Hoover is called the masters of deceit, and a good magician raves one hand in the air while he's doing his dirty work with the other hand. And while everybody's saying communism has died, uh, they moved through much of Africa. Communism is resurgent in South Africa, uh, into South and Central America. Right now, six countries in Latin America are now communistic. We are communist China. Cuba, North Korea, and we have Vietnam. It still dominates behind the scene in Russia. It's still very strong in Eastern Europe. It is strong in the EU. It is strong in virtually every country in the world. Whitaker Chambers said, the communism succeeds because most people that promote communist causes are not communist. The useful idiots, that Lenin called them, it gives it an air of legitimacy it would never have if it was identified with communists and communism. So why has it been so easy for them to get people on the left who aren't communists to push forward their agenda? Once I looked at the political scale, it all started to make sense. On the far left, you have 100% government, and on the far right, zero government. Anarchy is no government and doesn't make sense at all. On the far left, you have socialism, communism, and Nazism. All systems that have a socialist form of government with only slight variances between them. Traditionally, Republicans were slightly to the right of center and Democrats were slightly to the left. In recent years, though, through the radical influence of the media, Hollywood, and the multitude of Marxist professors in our universities, both parties have slid to the left. With the Democrats going so far, they have openly joined hand-in-hand hand with the radicals. That's why they all work together. All the groups on the left now have the same goal, a socialist America. I thought we were over communism. I thought, okay, we won that battle. The Berlin Wall came down. Ronald Reagan won the day. We've got to look and see how he fought this because we're fighting it again on American soil. Not, not hostily attacking us like we feared in the Cold War. It is from within. And it has no opposition. None. And that's the frightening thing. I think it's pretty clear to see communism isn't dead. They now disguise it by calling it different names. But the ideas behind it are alive and well. Almost one and a half billion people still live in openly communistic countries. But unfortunately, most of us in America who are under the age of 50 have no idea 
what communism means to the people who live under it. So my next question was, what's so bad about communism? Communism is so evil. It's a completely uh, tyrannical system. The whole history of communism is uh, is one of uh, mass murder. Uh, tens of millions of people brutally murdered by the communists. The mass murder of more people in times of peace in all the wars of history combined. Each of those countries where they have taken control, uh, millions have been murdered. When you're asking for what is the legacy of Marxism, it is the greatest killing machine in all of human history. We're talking a congressional record, 135 million dead due to communism. I think the real number is probably when you add in abortions, over 500 million. The rulers lived rather well, and at the same time you had all kinds of people who were enslaved, put in prison, oppressed. Uh, so you had uh, really uh, the opposite of what they claimed uh, was going to be the result of their revolutionary activities. You would think that if the 20th century was the most murderous of centuries, everyone would say, let's find out why. And the truth is, you can't even ask the question. It is verboten to ask the question because the ideas that brought about that mass murder uh, are still being taught in our public schools today. I think one of the reasons this has happened is because there's so much confusion surrounding the word communism. Technically speaking, communism is simply the final phase and goal of socialism. And socialism is best described by two words, big government. Government controls almost everything, and they use this power to take things by force from one person and give it to another. The liberals in America sincerely believe that this isn't evil at all. It is what will finally make things fair and just. There's only one problem that pulls some of us away from this wonderful utopian vision, history. From history we see that whether it was Hitler's National Socialism or Stalin's Soviet Socialism, socialism by whatever name and in all its forms is the ultimate evil. Sooner or later, it destroys everything in its path. Law, morality, family, prosperity, productivity, education, incentive, and finally life itself. The problem with socialism is that it creates the conditions for a Stalin or a Hitler to come to power. And that's why communism has such relevance today. It's the final destination on the road we're traveling. Friedrich Nietzsche tried to convince the world that God was dead. Charles Darwin tried to prove that humans are simply part of the animal kingdom. And Karl Marx realized that the philosophies of Nietzsche and Darwin would legitimize his own philosophy of communism. He knew their ideas would justify the brutality and slaughter that would be necessary to implement communism worldwide. It was in March of 1883, Karl Marx, the father of modern-day communism, died. The assumption that communism would die with him was a logical one, since only nine people attended his funeral. In October of that same year in London, England, a group was forming called the Fabian Socialist Society. The Fabian Socialists decided that they were going to socialize the world uh, incrementally. They called it uh, socialism by evolution instead of Marxist socialism by revolution. It always worked in tandem with the communists. 
Some Fabians were also communists. There was a bit of interchange of membership. The Fabian socialists are slowly but surely bringing about uh, the socialization of the world. Uh, Europe is uh, pretty well done. They are now working in Latin America. Latin America is not just socialistic in many countries. They're all already Marxist. You have uh, hardcore Marxism in Venezuela and uh, Nicaragua. El Salvador just won communistic. And, of course, Fidel is sitting right there laughing at this whole thing. And we haven't even figured this thing out yet. We don't even know there's a, bla- a red plague coming, coming up to meet us. We think that we're just going to watch the cartoons on Saturday morning and everything will be fine. They had a, uh, a lot to do with bad stuff happening. There are two things I found that gave me a good idea where the Fabians were really coming from. First of all, their symbol was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And secondly, George Bernard Shaw, who was a leader in the Fabians for almost 50 years, said, quote, I am a communist, but not a member of the Communist Party. Stalin is a first-rate Fabian. I am one of the founders of Fabianism, and as such, very friendly to Russia, unquote. Fabians eventually beget the Students for Democratic Society, which beget the Weather Underground, which beget the basically the social changes that have happened in America in the last 40 years. Many of the SDS members from the 1960s still have an incredible influence on the direction our country is heading. One is the Reverend Jim Wallace, who was president of SDS when he was a student at Michigan State University. And yet today, he is the spiritual advisor to the President of the United States. They've been friends for many years. They go back to Chicago and the Chicago politics crowd. And during the Vietnam War, he was rooting for the Viet Cong to beat the United States Army. And when they did, he couldn't, he just couldn't believe it. He said it was one of the happiest days in his life. And another leader in the Students for a Democratic Society and founder of the Weather Underground is William Ayers, who has been a longtime friend and neighbor of President Obama. It came out in 2009 that Obama's book, Dreams from My Father, was even written by Ayers. So the influence from the Fabian Socialist Society goes right into the White House. The next group I found that has seriously impacted America's culture is the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School was a sort of an outpost in America of European socialism. Willie Munzenberg, with a few other uh, Bolsheviks founded the Frankfurt School. The two leading members were Herbert Marcuse and Franz Neumann. Franz Neumann was, in fact, a Soviet agent. Their entire purpose was to uh, stand the entire educational system of the West, and the United States in particular, on its head. Bertrand Russell, who worked with the Frankfurt School, said, by using psychological techniques to teach the children, we will be able to produce, quote, an unshakable conviction that snow is black, unquote. They established a school here with the help of John Dewey. He helps bring these German intellectuals to America in 1933, drop them down at Princeton, Berkeley, Brandeis, to go after education and media. Included in those goals were the teaching of homosexuality and sexuality to children, the promotion of excessive drinking and destruction of religion in the United States. That was a big one. And they basically started the social rot. Willie Munzberg said, we are going to make the West so corrupt it stinks. 
I love spending time with my family, July 4th, baseball and apple pie. In my mind, can't even comprehend that there were groups of intellectuals back in the 1930s plotting and planning how they could make America so corrupt it stinks. There are certain lines and certain limits, and the left has always pushed it as hard as they can, as far as they can, and will protect any pornographer, any deviant, any cult, any negative cultural form they can find, basically to degrade the culture. And that goes right along with the feminism of today, which was part of the Frankfurt School's desire to destroy a patriarchal society for a matriarchal society. In other words, remove the father as the loving provider, discipliner, uh, discipler, uh, leader of his home, where you instill virtues and integrity and modesty. That's been broken down on purpose, because they knew if they could destroy the family, they could destroy a nation. And instead of having a father who leads and disciples and protects the home and provides for the family, the government steps in as a nanny state. The Frankfurt School developed the concept of cultural Marxism. You penetrate their culture, take it over, and then everything else will follow. And of course they did that, and today we've had a complete cultural revolution. As many people in America are familiar with the phrase, make love, not war, that actually came from Herbert Mucuza, who was with the Frankfurt School. So these guys went after education, they went after media, and they've been very successful in changing the entire worldview of Americans through what they call political correctness, but it's really cultural Marxism, with the goal being to destroy Christianity, then create chaos, and then move to their ultimate goal, which is from cultural Marxism to traditional Marxism, which is socialism. Most of the strategy to remake America from within started with Antonio Gramsci, who wrote over 2,000 pages back in the 1930s outlining how to take a Judeo-Christian culture down from the inside. The plan he suggested has been the main focus of the left ever since. Antonio Gramsci was a, a neo-Marxist uh, philosopher. Antonio Gramsci was an Italian communist. Antonio Gramsci is probably the, the biggest troublemaker in the world. He's probably got more, more responsibility for our social ills than anybody else on the planet. He knew of the importance of undermining the morals and the character of, of this country. Because America had a strong Christian heritage, you had to uh, attack the culture. You had to change the culture. It's even the pornography and the areas that uh, most people normally wouldn't accept. He said that we're going to destroy the West by destroying its culture. We're going to infiltrate and we're going to turn their music, their art, and their literature against them. That means that you penetrate the universities, the, you write the books, the novels, the poetry, the music, the book reviews. And once you control the culture, then you can sort of shaped the thought of rising generations. He differed with Marx instead of, for example, uh, destroying the church and the other basic institutions. He said infiltrate them and use them to change the culture. What uh, Gramsci had to say was that this is the way that government is perpetuated and society is perpetuated is through these churches because they set the standards, they set the framework of the way people live, of rules, how families should be structured. He didn't want a, a revolution on the streets that would be overturned by the police the next day. He wanted to change society over the long term so that we would have a revolution without us even realizing it, basically. And the communists have been very effective 
in promoting their ideology in Hollywood, in the mass media. And I think he was quite right. I think that's exactly what has happened. I think that's where it's worked. I think it's working that way now. And that's where a lot of these people come from. And that's been the big success story of communism in the last 50 years. It's the professors, it's the educationalists, it's the journalists. They are the shock troops, the Gramscian shock troops of the future. And one of Gramsci's all-star disciples, Saul Alinsky, became one of the most influential radicals of the 1960s. Well, Saul Alinsky was a... He was a prominent radical in 1930s Chicago. He worked closely with the Communist Party. He used to go down um, and train at the rifle range with Leon Dupre, who was uh, later a mentor of Barack Obama. And they used to train to shoot because they knew the revolution was just around the corner. But that didn't come, so they, he, he got a bit more subtle. Well, Saul Linsky called for a um, uh, community organizer to stir things up, to create... Uh, agitation. In fact, he said you'll be accused of being an agitator, and that's exactly what you are. He wanted the haves and have-nots fighting with each other. It wasn't until I was watching an old film from World War II that I realized what the left has been doing in America to pit the poor against the rich, blacks against whites, and the young against the old is the same tactic Hitler used to disunify Germany. You see, they knew that they were not strong enough to conquer a unified country. So they split Germany into small groups. They used prejudice as a practical weapon to cripple the nation. Remember that when you hear this kind of talk. Somebody is going to get something out of it. And it isn't going to be you. And they used the conflict as justification for more government to stop the chaos. So they create the chaos, and then they step in as a solution to the chaos. And as Francis Schaeffer said, once this chaos comes, most people will willingly give over to authoritarianism because they don't want the chaos. His book was kind of the field manual, if you will, for these activist organizations. Which President Obama studied and taught at a workshop for four years in Chicago as a community organizer for ACORN. As I was reading through Rules for Radicals to see where he was coming from, I just happened to take a look at the dedication in the front of the book, and this is what I saw. Quote, Lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom. Lucifer. Unquote. Saul Alinsky from Antonio Gramsci has had an incredible amount of influence on our president, and on our society. And he dedicates his book openly to Lucifer, Satan. I think that says more about where their ideas and plans are based than anything else. You asked what Saul Alinsky's impact is on the leftist movement today. And it basically defines it. It defines it. Saul Alinsky took the best of Gramsci and the best of the Fabian Socialist ideas, combined, repackaged, and sold them to the 60s radicals. After studying Alinsky, Richard Cloward and his wife, Frances Fox Piven, came up with what is today known as the Cloward-Piven strategy. Now, their idea was basically that to destroy society or destroy capitalism per se... They needed to overload the system. It was the idea was to 
get everybody you possibly could on welfare, to get everybody you possibly could basically milking the system in some way or another. It was called the crisis strategy, and it became very well known by activists and radicals in the 60s. They published an article in the May 1966 issue of Nation magazine called The Weight of the Poor, in which they outlined their strategy. Rathke read that article, and Rathke ended up starting what we now know today as ACORN, and of course, Cloward and Piven had been studying Saul Alinsky. So Antonio Gramsci gives us Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky gives us the Cloward and Piven strategy, this husband and wife that said, hey, let's collapse the American economy by implementing so many entitlements, so much of a welfare state, it collapsed. He, Rathke, studied the Cloward and Piven strategy. He starts ACORN. And of course, ACORN gave us Obama. And to show what a small world it is, Wade Rathke, who started ACORN, was the draft resistance organizer for SDS, the group the Fabians started. They've used that strategy ever since to expand voting roles, to expand um, welfare roles wherever they can, basically just to overload the system, to increase the tax burden on the middle class, and basically bring capitalism one step closer to destruction. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that we still have open borders, that so many people are dependent on the government, and that the left keeps pushing these programs when all they've done is tear apart the black families in America and create generational cycles of poverty. The last group that has worked alongside the Fabians and the Frankfurt School using Gramsci's approach is the Communist Party USA. Probably the most important book on this subject is called Towards Soviet America by William Z. Foster. William Z. Foster was the head of the Communist Party himself. Uh, he ran for the president of the United States in 1932, but in the book Towards Soviet America, he literally lays out chapter by chapter by chapter what is entailed to bring about a USSA, not just a USSR. Two of the movements they started in America have played a significant role in tearing apart our families, in breaking down our morality. Uh, Betty Friedan is credited with really starting the feminist movement in this country. The purpose really was to attack full-time homemakers, to get them out of the home, to make them think they live dreary lives, to make women feel they are victims. It's the science of victimology. And um, that is so unfortunate because the American woman is the most fortunate class of people who ever lived on the face of the earth. And to try to tell them that they, they are victims of an oppressive, unjust uh, uh, patriarchy is, is just a, a grievous lie. But unfortunately, they are teaching young women that and have been doing it for many years. While Betty Friedan was pushing her book, Feminine Mystique, She implied that she was coming from the point of being a frustrated housewife herself and just wanted to be a help to other women. But later in the 1990s, it came out, she was in fact a radical propagandist for the Communist Party and a staunch supporter of Stalin. So when she had described the American family as, quote, a comfortable concentration camp, unquote, it wasn't because of her experience at home It was because she was just doing her part to dismantle our families. 
I'm a student of communism, and the communists set up various groups and various societies. Their society that they set up to promote homosexuality in this country was called the Mattachine Society. It was founded by Henry Hay, a leading member of the Communist Party. So since I was studying communism and teaching on the, on, on the issue of communism, you just follow leads, and all of a sudden you realize, what is this Mattachine? I've never heard of this Mattachine Society. Well, it was Henry Hay's organization set up to infiltrate the culture of the United States to make homosexuality normal. It's always been a movement dominated by the left. It's um, all these so-called isms. You will find there's a there's a communist or a socialist behind every one of them, and you'll you'll you'll, you'll always see the targets. It's, it's basically the traditional family unit. The war is still against the family. If you go back to the Communist Manifesto and read Karl Marx carefully, the war is against what they call the bourgeois family, which was really the biblical family, father, mother, and child. They want to plow through marriage. They want to, they want to change the very definition and meaning of marriage because their open door to engineering society in this utopian way uh, is blocked by the very values of our Christian civilization that's taught through marriage. And so the left just has got to destroy the family because if there's any one thing that will prevent the left from carrying out its agenda, it's healthy and strong nuclear families. And so from the Fabian Socialist Society to the Frankfurt School to Antonio Gramsci and the Communist Party USA, from these four, you will find connections to almost every left-leaning person and organization in America. Their influence has been incredible. It was in the 1960s all the groups on the left seemed to realize Antonio Gramsci was right. In a Judeo-Christian society, you will never be able to persuade people to rise up in a Marxist revolution and start killing each other off. The only way to take the culture down is through penetrating the institutions of influence to change the people from within. I guess the biggest surprise I had while studying these four groups was seeing that a large part of their agenda was trying to make us an immoral people. The communists knew in the, the 1930s and, and since that time, and the leftists uh, know today, that if you can break down the cultural tra traditions, the uh, basic rules of morality, uh, then it's much easier to move people in different directions uh, that are counter to the good of society. They recognize that it's all part of the same fabric. Their ideologies all work together to break down families, to break down the sanctity of human life, the value of human life, to break down the idea that there is a God that we are accountable to. They essentially are validating the Judeo-Christian worldview by the very things they attack. Because in their effort to destroy our culture, they know that they have to go after the very things that the Judeo-Christian tradition honors and values. Uh, morality, belief in God, faith, the importance of family, the sanctity of life, uh, the sanctity of marriage. It's amazing our enemies could see our morality was our greatest strength. And yet so many Americans don't seem to get it. Morality is simply having the character to do what you should do instead of what you have the freedom to do. And that's the only way freedom works. A people cannot be given freedom without morality or they will self-destruct. And that's what we see happening in America today. The bottom line is freedom 
and free enterprise are simply fruit on the tree of morality. Our founding fathers clearly understood this principle, and so do our enemies. There is an important fact we need to face. If we had Ronald Reagan as president, low taxes, and a strong national defense, the ship certainly wouldn't be sinking as fast as it is now, but it would still be sinking. A booming economy doesn't take care of the major problems we face. 50% of all marriages end in divorce. 40% of all children born out of wedlock. Over 3,000 women a day aborting their babies. 19 million new cases each year of sexually transmitted diseases. Schools that teach the children. Everything is relative. There is no right or wrong. And the list goes on and on. I recently read in our local paper that over the last 12 months, almost 7% of all high school students in my state tried to commit suicide. Our society is falling apart, whether we want to admit it or not. Karl Marx had the insight to see that dethroning God and destroying capitalism went hand in hand. As you attempt to dethrone God by erasing the morality in a society and destroying his institutions, the family and the church, you are destroying capitalism because as the families fall apart and the church loses its influence, society starts to crumble. And then government has to expand to pick up the pieces. The question, as Whitaker Chambers put it, was God or man? God or man? Karl Marx was an atheist. Marx's philosophy was that people existed for the benefit of the state. What Marxian did and does and all the other isms of the modern era is to try to dethrone God by deifying man. You have to discredit God. He's your competition. The 20th century ushered in several ideologies that uh, sought to uh, devalue God and elevate man. Communism, relativism, humanism, they all deny that there's a God and uh, they claim that by doing so they're really elevating man. But if you look at how each of those philosophies end up working out in real life, there are always some classes of human beings that don't deserve the same value or rights as anyone else. To turn it around, um, to believe in freedom the way we have been raised You have to believe that there's something precious about every human person. And, of course, that's from the Bible. Imago Dei, we are all created in the image of God. Therefore, uh, every human being is entitled to respect and dignity and freedom, and that is distinctive to biblical religion. You don't find anywhere else. Almost all the ideas that have made America such a unique and great country, our founding fathers got straight out of the Bible. I guess that's why the left only has a problem with one religion, biblical Christianity. They never complain about separation of church and state when it comes to Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or any of the other religions. In fact, a couple years ago, the Dalai Lama came to my town, and during the school day, at taxpayers' expense, thousands of our local school children were bussed in to hear him talk. I wonder if they would ever do that for someone like Billy Graham. No, they must destroy the Bible's influence in America so they can step in with big government in its place. It's an age-old question. 
Are we going to believe in God or are we going to play God ourselves? Essentially for the left, the choice that they see very clearly is people are going to depend upon God or they are going to depend upon government. They want people to depend upon government, so they have to destroy faith in God. At its core, it's a rebellion against God and God's uh, laws. And that's what the battle is about. That's what the assault is, is on. That's why Christianity is, is, uh, is a target. And that's why we saw the gulags in the Soviet Union. We saw the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And all the uh, ideologies that elevate man end up devaluing certain human beings. Dictators of the left, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Castro, and all the others, always have come to power by acting like they're going to change things to make it better for the people. Yet history has shown us the devastating results that have happened every single time. There is no example in history of big government that didn't abuse its power over the people. But people who have believed in the God of the Bible and that our rights are a gift from Him to everyone have always stood up for the preciousness of every human life. You look at those who have fought for true human rights throughout the ages, and it's those that do have a strong faith in God, those who fought against slavery, and those now today who are fighting for the sanctity of human life. Like the Declaration is, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. Aristotle didn't believe that. He said no, some people are born to be slaves, and some other people are born to rule over them. The reason that you and I know different, and it's not because we're smarter than Aristotle, he's a smart man. But we have something he didn't have. We have the Bible. And so, therefore, that's where we get these ideas. And, and from pagan antiquity or neo-paganism or all the modernisms, you, you get the opposite. After studying this topic for the last two years and reading literally hundreds of their books and articles and speeches, I've come to the conclusion, whether the left knows it or not, their plans and goals can all be summed up very simply they are at war with God. A people that are moral and believe their rights come from God would not only never want what they're selling, but would also never need it. And they know that. It's obvious if you're trying to trying to subvert a country, you want to control the news. You want to control public opinion. And a lot of people realize, well, there's a biased media, and most people know that. Even the Washington Post admitted it. Yeah, we were biased for Obama, so what? And when you enter into the equation... So what? That means the biases, the opinions of the reporters enter into what is news. They decide whether you have a right to know. And it's no longer a bias. They turn from just, from just political bias to activism. They go to the places that influence, or I should say, where they can have leverage. Generations of journalists have been trained to interpret events, interpret the news, not report the facts, interpret the news. They do not deal in facts because facts aren't effective for them. They have very few facts on their side. They've gone into and penetrated these major areas to where they can influence it in the direction they want to go. We've seen a massive shift away from old-fashioned objective news reporting to what he called interpretive reporting, what others call advocacy journalism. And it's advocacy for a cause. And as a result, we have a news media in the United States that is extremely liberal at the present time. Which was a, a major, major goal. 
control not merely the newsprint but the television media and and Hollywood. Stalin said himself, if I could control Hollywood, I could rule the world. Children are always the first targets of anybody trying to bring down a system. John Dewey is believed to be the most influential man in the whole area of public education. He uh, went to Russia in 1928 to help say the Karl Marx way of education, bring it back to America. Dewey was a, an atheist. He was a, a socialist, a humanist. He was part of the Socialist Society in America, helped found that. What he believed in was that education should socialize the child to make him uh, a, a willing tool of the state. It might be surprising to some that the man who is still idolized as the father of public education in America is the very man who did everything in his power to dumb down our children so that they would willingly accept his vision of a socialist America. It started with Dewey in the early 1900s. It expanded, um, really expanded since the 1960s. The hard left gets control of the teachers' unions and the training colleges. If you've got those two institutions, you can pretty much dictate all educational policy. The people who were uh, demonstrating against our country and against our government in the 1960s have now become tenured professors in the universities. So they're the ones who are writing the textbooks, uh, teaching the teachers, uh, running the teachers' colleges. And it's self-perpetuating, because once you have the universities... Then you train more cadres and more and more and more. And they discovered that they could uh, do more to remake our country by going into the schools uh, than they could by throwing bombs. I believe the average patriotic American underestimates the importance and influence education has on their children. That's how the large majority we had in 1980 to elect Ronald Reagan in a landslide has been lost. It's not because the other side has had lots of children. No, they're aborting theirs. But instead, they're capturing ours through the propaganda they teach them, seven hours a day for 13 years, and even longer if they attend college. We are losing most of our children to the other side because of the anti-American, anti-God, and anti-free enterprise rhetoric they are filled with in the government schools. Government schools are not teaching basic reasoning processes. They're not teaching logic. They're not teaching actual data of history and science and mathematics. And if your education is rather limited, then you're inclined to believe that a government can be the solution to your problems. When you look at the desks in the schoolroom, you'll find four together, or maybe a table. They sit around table. Independent desks are very rare in most classrooms because they don't want to promote the self-sufficiency, independence mindset. You go back to William Z. Foster in his book, Toward Soviet America, you will see how uh, he has a whole chapter there on how we have to supplant education in this country and ultimately force every student to attend public school. That's the other thing. I hope the homeschoolers get, catch on to this. The homeschoolers and the Christian day school movement are going to have some very rough times ahead of them because 
the public school crowd cannot afford to have any competition. And they're having and they're being given plenty of competition by the homeschoolers right now. You see the effects of that in lowered educational standards. There's no more studying of the classics or studying of the civics or you know how the US Constitution was formed. It's it's all progressive education. It's all based on the identity politics, the isms, the current trend, the isms, environmentalism, racism. They're training them for the collective and a collective mindset and a dependency mindset. And it seems that they, again, want to have people be uneducated, so then they do become wards of the state. They're dependent on the government to provide everything for them. It's under 10% of kids believe that, that there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong. And how, why are we surprised? We've sent our kids into this government system that indoctrinates them, that teaches them about tolerance and diversity and multiculturalism and not about reading, writing, and arithmetic, not about what our founding fathers had to say. It's, it's consequences. Few would argue that the education the children are receiving in the public schools is pathetic at best, but with the amount of tax dollars we spend each year over twice as much as it would cost to send the students to private school, why do we allow this to continue? The group that my investigation led me to that seems dedicated to making sure the children don't get a good education was a real shocker. The uh, schools are, are pretty much controlled by the Teachers Union, the National Education Association. If you look at their platform and goals, uh, you would think they were a socialist or almost communistic organization. They are for the entire feminist agenda, uh, starting with abortion on demand, tax-funded abortions. They're for the whole gay rights agenda. Uh, They're for the whole globalism agenda. They are extremely anti-parent. It is an effort to get the children to abandon the values of their parents. National Education Association has no uh, patience, tolerance, or use for traditional teachers. They're looking for people who want to be agents of change. They want to throw out all the lessons of history. And really, it's an attempt to then impose their own views and ideas onto people, get them to act as activists. If you control those institutions, then you can control everything else. It's all public schools all for their jobs, and they have gotten behind all of the radical kinds of curriculum that's being introduced. They're for it 100%. They've had a tremendous effect on public education. It's not positive. We also see immorality being promoted through our schools, the kind of sex ed curriculum that is being used and paid for with our tax dollars would shock most parents. I think one of the main problems we face is parents naively thinking that the schools are the same today as they were when they were young. They don't realize there is a battle going on in this country for the hearts and minds of our children. The game is between 15 and 25 years of age. That's the whole game. If you're over 25, the chances are they're going to put a few pennies towards you to corrupt you. But their game right now is to corrupt the 15 to 25-year-olds or less. And right now they're down in the first grade with Heather has two mommies, daddy's roommate, uh, gay pride parade and now by 8th grade they'll pass out condoms and school colors because that's so patriotic and it's perfectly obvious that you get a hold of the child early 
you can change his values away from his parents' values and get him to follow you. And they're very open about saying that. The National Education Association has passed a resolution saying they want children from birth. Isn't that interesting? The Communist Manifesto also thought the state should take control of children at birth. The left has always been good at disguising their real agenda by coming up with phrases made from words we are very familiar with, but then giving them new definitions. Social justice is the current phrase of choice and is being used to teach children the failed Marxist ideas of yesteryear or what they should strive for today. We see social justice curriculum today, which is the buzzword for communism, socialism, Marxism, which Bill Ayers is teaching. It's in many of our colleges, and the social justice curriculum is being taught in high schools all over the nation. Justice is good. If you then start calling something blank justice, then you're modifying it. And what it really means is, I think, taking from one group of people and giving to another group. So I would call it socialism. And it's used to uh, break down the differences between the way things are done and the way it should be done. So when they're teaching social justice in the schools, they're not talking about free enterprise and capitalism and individual self-responsibility, all the things that made America great. They're talking about the things that made made Europe and the Soviet Union and China so bad. The longer we allow our schools to teach the children that America has so many faults, it's not worth saving, instead of the fact that even with its faults, it is the greatest country that has ever existed, the less chance we have of ever turning our people back from the dead-end road we're currently on. A road that promises to give us a perfect world if we'll only give up our sovereignty and our freedom. You're going to find more and more of the following. This is now called a world pledge. We no longer want the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America because that is considered nationalistic. And, of course, the socialists, the communists, and the Marxists and the extreme left wing in the country uh, want nothing to do with it. I pledge allegiance to the world, to care for earth, sea, and air, to honor every living thing with peace and justice everywhere. This came out, first of all, in Superior, Wisconsin. So Superior, Wisconsin was their guinea pig, and there was very little uh, set against it, and so it would then go to the next and the next and the next, and before long you'll have the whole school system standing up saying, I pledge allegiance to the world instead of I pledge allegiance to the U.S. The public schools right now, if you'll read towards Soviet America, have nearly accepted every item that William Z. Foster said we needed to place into the public school curriculum. And we're seeing the results, you know. People are not as informed as they once were. They think in different ways, and they think in the way that the left intends them to think. Antonio Gramsci realized that if you can take over the institutions and the culture, you will be able to use those to influence society to create the socialist man you want. I think the most brilliant part of his plan was that he realized you could not only create a man that wanted big government to take care of him, cradle to grave, but, and this is the genius of Gramsci, you could create a man that needed big government to take care of him, cradle to grave. A man so dumbed down and so minimized in society, he wouldn't have the intellect or character to take care of himself. The reason this is so deadly for America is that once we have a certain percentage of the population in that category, our limited constitutional form of government is no longer possible. 
because too many people won't be able to exist in that framework. We are approaching that tipping point rapidly. If you can persuade people that government should be in control of the distribution and use of energy, you can persuade them, or rather, you have persuaded them of the necessary and sufficient condition for government control of the most intimate aspects of our lives. One of the main uh, thrusts of socialism these days is obviously through the environmental movement. You know, one hates to pick on Al Gore too quickly and easily, uh, but I read the whole of his book, Earth in the Balance, Ecology and the Human Spirit, back in 1992 when it was first published. And if you, if you know anything about the history of political philosophy, you read the last chapter in that called A Global Marshall Plan, and you understand that there is no way to implement what Al Gore was calling for in 1992 in that book, except by means of totalitarian world government. Patrick Moore, who was a co-founder of Greenpeace, and he was a very dedicated environmentalist, quit Greenpeace when he realized that it had been captured by radical leftists who were intent on using the environmental movement as a vehicle to destroy capitalism. How many factories work when there's a power outage? None. You want to hurt business, you want to drive down industrial production, you just drive up the prices of energy, you just diminish its availability, and the easiest way to do that is to make people scared to death of the cheapest forms of energy, which are fossil fuels, oil, coal, natural gas, and nuclear energy. They had already made people afraid of nuclear because of irrational fears, uh, but then they had to figure out a way to make them afraid of, of fossil fuels. Well, the way to do that was to say they're going to cause catastrophic global warming. So I used to think this was just one great big distraction. If they want to end, put their energies toward the environment, but now I see that this is now being turned around and used as a tool to further a socialist agenda. Charles Rubin, a political scientist who wrote the book The Green Crusade, has told this story extremely well. Environment comes from a French word meaning surroundings. Well now, what is surroundings? Everything around you, right? And so as Rubin points out, environmentalism is literally everythingism. And so if you were a socialist committed ideologically to the notion of government having control of everything about our lives, and you saw that you were losing the contest in terms of the creation of wealth and its distribution to capitalism, you had to find some other basis on which to promote your vision of government and to pursue its implementation. Environmentalism, or everythingism, was the perfect card. In December of 2009, when the ClimateGate scandal broke open and it became public that even the leaders of the movement knew the whole global warming idea was a farce, it wasn't them just having bad data, we as Americans knew once and for all that this movement was simply part of their agenda. It's my guess that regardless of the evidence that comes out against them, they will not let this tool they have waited the last hundred years for go to waste. A tool that gives them the absolute power and control they want, but allows them to get it under the guise of saving the planet. He was born of left-wing parents. 
He was mentored as a young man by a Communist Party member called Frank Marshall Davis. Now, Davis joined the Communist Party in Chicago, and he was very well connected there. So young Obama eventually wound up in Chicago, and he started working with the very same people that had been working with his friend Frank Marshall Davis. All of his associations have been with people that are way left to center, hardcore left. And he, he's doing nothing more than, than what is predictable based upon that background. The nicest word for his agenda is the socialist agenda, and we could go on down the line of the, le- the other descriptors of the, the types of an economy and a society that he's building. He's all the things that Gramsci wanted to use for social change. Yeah, he's the epitome of the movement. If you think there's no way that so few could be so effective, consider this. When the Communist Party USA split in 1992, the group that formed was the Committees of Correspondence, and it was their meeting I attended that summer at Berkeley. As I started researching that group, I saw that many of the same people who started or have worked with the Committees of Correspondence and its sister organizations were the same people who were involved with President Obama's campaign and administration. I found file after file on Trevor Loudon's website documenting with footnotes and photographs these connections. The radical left has been so successful they have persuaded the American people to put one of their own in the White House. Socialism and Marxism go together like Mary and Mary's little lamb. The general populace knows very little about what what the socialists are up to. If you're going to find socialism, you're going to find the you're going to find the hardcore communists right behind it. One of the main avenues has been through what they call it the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Twenty percent of the U.S. Congress are members of this organization. They have chairmanships of of most of the major house committees and are are easily the single most powerful bloc in the US Congress. And virtually all of them are tied to either Democratic Socialists of America, the Communist Party USA, or other radical organizations. We're literally at this very time watching what's transpiring and has been going on from the Fabian Socialist point of view from 1883 to the present. So these guys don't give up. And they're going at a breakneck speed because they know they've got an opportunity now to change America in a way that can never be changed back and they're going for broke. The Bolsheviks, they're just waiting in the woods, and they're just smiling like you can't believe. You just read the Communist Party USA uh, blog, and they just can't believe their good fortune. Every time they turn around, they just can't believe this is happening. They're like me. I'm a Christian conservative, and I can't believe they've been so successful in doing this. The left has started multitudes of foundations and nonprofit organizations, many of which are using our tax dollars to grind America down. Uh, They use all kinds of patriotic words uh, to masquerade an extreme leftist uh, orientation, uh, which, if anything, would uh, enslave the people uh, in uh, the same kinds of things with the same kind of ultimate results as communism had. The communists will let the socialists go so far, and then ultimately the communists really turn on their fellow socialists and they wipe them out too. Uh, And their attitude, I think, is really uh, probably pretty close. They figure, look... If these socialists betrayed their own country, the chances are, once we get in power, they'll betray us too. So they'll figure, let's just rub them out right now. And at at a given point, you'll see in the history of communism that they've been very effective in rubbing out their fellow socialists who brought about their socialism before the Bolsheviks and the the hardcore uh, communists with a capital C took them over.
One thing we do really have to recognize is this is a domestic enemy. This is not just people with different ideas. These are not just nice folks who have funny, silly ideas that they will eventually figure out are just not very mature. No, these people are dangerous, dangerous enemies, and they are intent on overthrowing this country and imposing a socialist system that will mean extreme hardship for the vast majority of people in this country. That's true with them constantly seeking to re-engineer society so they reach this level of utopian perfection. Where we on the other side, um, we, we advance the idea that this is about the cause of freedom. And if it hadn't been for Jesus Christ, there never would have been a United States of America. Because the inspiration for freedom drove our founding fathers. They were informed by their faith, and I believe guided by the hand of God. No. No. Perhaps uh, treacherously close. It is never over until it's over. When the fat lady sings, isn't that the slogan? And when the fat lady sings, it's over. Now, she might be clearing her throat. We saw the great country of Germany in the 1920s brought to its knees. Hitler came into power and destroyed the country. We see countries like Zimbabwe in Africa, which was once a prosperous breadbasket, now just wrecked. Argentina was, was destroyed by the socialist Peron in the 50s. It was one of the richest countries in the world. So, no, we're not at the point of no return, but it's, it's getting pretty late in the day. There's not... There's no time to be casual, that's for sure. We've spent too many years thinking, because we have Republicans in office, or the stock market is doing well, that everything's okay. This is why the left has gained so much ground. It doesn't matter who's been in office. They've just continued pushing forward with their agenda. Well, I believe this is our last chance to push back. If people are looking for something to do, we have our work cut out for us. I believe one of the things that we can do that will have a profound impact in changing America is praying. Well, as soon as we get off our knees, we need to get on our feet. Become educated about what's going on in the country. Spend time reading. Understand their philosophy and their goals. They have to master this documentary. They have to go over it a dozen times. It might be having a monthly movie night with family and friends watching one of the many great documentaries out there about what is going on in our country. One of the things that I think uh, people in the, in the United States who believe in our country, believe in our values, can do, quite frankly, is stand up for those values, uh, to make their views known. And there's times that you got to speak up, and you've got to call things what they are. We need to be willing to be criticized and to not be silent because of the criticism. It was Martin Luther who said, if we're faithful on all battlefronts besides, it's precisely where the battle's the hottest, then we're traitors to the cause. I like the quote by Abraham Lincoln who said that silence makes cowards out of the best of men. And we got a lot of people that need to be speaking up right now. We have an obligation to speak the truth about the policies that are taking us 180 degrees from God's, God's will. Expand within your church. Expand within the people you have contact. Bring them up to speed and knowledge on what's going on. We need to organize those around us by simply mobilizing the unique groups of people we are in contact with and being their source of information, we can have an extraordinary effect. Lenin said that the organized minority will beat the disorganized majority every time. Why should we be buying products from companies that are going to fund 
organizations that attack our values. They need to uh, be really smart in using the mass media. They might want to blog. Using the power of, of YouTube and that sort of thing to educate as many people as possible. A good YouTube video can reach millions of people. And um, if Susan Boyle can do it, why can't we? If you do the right kinds of things on YouTube that are creative and do them frequently, you can drive a message through society, influencing millions at almost no cost. We need to be the people who graciously but consistently make contact. And express to those folks we elected what we want them to do, and what we believe in, what we think is right. And if they don't follow those things, then we need to make efforts to get them out and get other people in that will. Pick the good ones and stick to them. Don't waste your time on people who won't stand up for their country. All the others are making contact. The people who really want to honor America need to make contact. We also need to be influencing our own families. We've got to teach our own children and grandchildren the difference between truth and error, why they believe the things they do, and the true source of America's greatness. If what we're talking about is true, the most important thing we can do is protect our young, because that is where all of this is leading. They need to get that younger generation under their belt. And more and more parents are going to have to say, they're just going to have to sacrifice and take responsibility for their kids' education, because that's really where it starts, to impart that belief. The Southern Baptists, we're seeing that 85% of their kids, after they get out of their home, are essentially rejecting their faith rejecting what they were taught. And of course, I think the reason for that is because their parents didn't have a lot of influence over them. I believe the public schools are the greatest cultural influence in this country. You homeschool your kids or get them in a Christian day school. If there is any way at all, homeschool your children. Homeschoolers outtest everybody. Our children need to be taught from Scripture a properly biblical worldview. That requires time. It requires effort. It requires purpose. Our minds should be the sharpest minds in the world. We need to work within our family to educate our children on what kind of country they live in and build their faith and then get involved. The left has been working for decades to push us away from God and His laws. And we need to be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to turn our country back to Him. Throughout our history as Americans, though, There has always been a great price to be paid for preserving, protecting, and defending this great land. The people who built America paid a great price. The people who went to war for our nation, boy, did they pay a price. And one of the American values was, we will pay a price for what is right. We will give of ourselves, even if it requires the giving of our lives. That was an American value. That's why it is such a heroic and honorable thing when a soldier defending us pays that price. That's like when you go to Arlington Cemetery in Washington or the Tomb of the Unknown. You stand there and you say, this is America. We were the people who so believed in these values that it's an honor to stand for, even if it can cost you your very life. One thing I think we do need to remember, though, is that as we look at those we consider to be heroes in the past, they weren't people who just went along with the status quo. They weren't people who were just saying what was accepted at that time in history. They were people who were rising up above the 
evil that was being committed in their culture at that time. That's why they were heroes, because they weren't like everyone else. Never, ever lose sight of the power of one individual American. They, have, they can have an unbelievable magnifying effect just by the very fact they make up their mind to do so. The hope is in this, as Francis Schaeffer said, that as the dull ache of the human soul can no longer be filled with material prosperity, people are going to turn to spiritualism. Will it be pagan spirituality or biblical Christianity? We know, according to the Denver Post, June of 2008, pagan spirituality is doubling in America every 18 months. So we better get out there, because I'll tell you, pagan spirituality and Christianity will both get you to God. But one will get you there as your judge, as your savior. If we humble ourselves, we fall to our knees, if we seek his face, we pray, and we turn from our wicked ways, then we have a chance for God to hear from heaven, to forgive our sins, and heal our land. Uh, and if we are being judged, then we need to use this as an opportunity to show people that uh, this judgment in this life is nothing compared to the judgment that's to come, is eternal, and really make them understand the importance of uh, fleeing God's wrath by accepting Him, repenting of their sins through faith and repentance. I believe that's the only chance, the only hope we have as a nation. Hope is not found in rhetoric. Hope is found in God, the God of creation. And you know what? Our founders were in covenant with that God. You need a dedicated, informed praying Christian, making things happen, and being determined to do so. Time has only allowed me to present a fraction of what I found. The reason I called this film Agenda is because I wanted to make a clear distinction between what I was researching and all the conspiracy theories out there. The dictionary says a conspiracy is an evil plan formulated in secret by two or more persons, but an agenda is simply a list of things to be done. At every turn of my investigation, I found agendas by people and groups of the left outlining their plan in their own words. They've been doing most of this right out in the open. Some of you might be thinking, these Marxist ideas aren't the most serious threat we face. What about militant Islam, our open borders, the national debt, or even China? Well, I agree. America is facing so many serious threats right now. But the reason I believe this is the most dire is because it's destroying us on the inside. Through the political correctness and dumbing down, it's causing us to lose our ability to call evil evil and stand against it. I fear for our country. If we go along business as usual, not informed, not aware of what's going on, then the very small minority that have a plan and are great at organizing the uninformed and misguided will make sure their plan is carried out. I hope you realize it won't just be your children and grandchildren that pay the horrific price of living in the society they're trying to create. No, it will be far worse than that. Every time a, a civilization goes down or a country goes down militarily or economically, somebody else fills the gap. Now, if you look around the world now, it's going to be China, which is massively arming. You've got, the, you've got Russia, which is becoming increasingly belligerent. You've got the radical Islamic world, which is, works hand in glove with the Russians and the Chinese all the time. You've got a virtually red Latin America. Um, you've got a neutral socialist Europe. So America hasn't got a lot of friends left in the world. Now, that's just not going to affect America. That's going to affect every single remaining country in the free world. Who's going to stand up to China if America doesn't? Who's going to stand up to the Russians? Is Europe going to do it? Australia, New Zealand, Canada? 
not a chance. If America, and this is the point I think Americans need to comprehend, if America goes down economically, it will go down militarily. If America goes down militarily, we all go down. The free world is finished, and it'll be finished for a very, very long time. That pretty much sums up exactly what I've been telling everybody. We're the last bastion of hope, and we're going down, bit by bit by bit. This has been a plan from over 150 years, and the enemy knows. They know the game. They know that they won. They just have to uh, do a mop-up now, kind of. Anyway, remember what I said about CBD. Remember what I said about the uh, regular oil and the colloidal silver as well. These are weapons that we can use to defend ourselves. The new attack is going to be cyber or bio, and the Chinese proved that. Chinese used bio-warfare on us and the world, and the Russians are now using cyber attacks. Pay attention. Pay close attention to what's happening around you. Don't get sucked into all of this, what's called hope porn. I see it all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trump's going to be president in August. This is CIA talking points, and they're doing this to basically overwhelm patriots and to get them to just give up and say, oh, I've had enough of this crap. Pay attention to what's going on. There's a lot of us out there. There's a lot of us out there. People are starting to wake up, and they're starting to put together little tiny groups that are definitely a threat to this government. Definitely. Remember, Survival Enterprises, 800-753-1981, se1.us, survivalenterprises.com. This is the Armchair Survivalist signing off. Keep your nose in the air and your ear to the ground. And again, pay attention.